Hi, and welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and with me, as always, is Nick Seagraves. Hey, Nick. Hi, Ryan. You can follow us on the Twitters uh, at Nick underscore Seagraves, S-E-G-R-A-V-E-S, or at Ryan M. Huber, that's R-Y-A-N-M-H-U-B-E-R, no spaces, or at The Mean Pod. I think that's what it's called, at The Mean Pod. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. you can ask us questions, you can give us complaints. We uh, like to post things on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, through blog posts at culturemakerblog.com, and through our Facebook. So if you're listening to this, hopefully you found it one of those ways or some magical alternative way uh, that we don't know about. Maybe you found us directly on SoundCloud, I'm not sure. But uh, this is episode 11 of The Mean and we are here today to talk to you about the concept of the spoiler alert. The spoiler alert mm. as a species of thing. So, Nick, when, mm. when you hear about spoiler alerts, what do you think about? Many things. Many, many things. Um, mostly people on the internet mm-hmm. saying, don't spoil this for me. Yeah. Or starting a post off with... Spoiler alert. Yeah. And then That's the thing a I think colon. About first. Like when, yeah. when I'm reading something and someone's like, spoiler alert. But now it's become, yeah. it's become sort of ironic because most of the podcasts or blogs or whatever that I interact with, they'll say spoiler alert. And then immediately after they'll say, come on, if you haven't seen this movie yet, they'll say spoiler about like Casablanca. Yeah. And it's like, this is on you audience. If, if you don't know what happens to this. If if you don't understand. Yeah, and I've um I've seen it used as like a funny like of course this would happen. Yeah, yeah. Spoiler. Like alert. I was hanging out yeah. with my friend Tim and spoiler we went nowhere or like whatever. Yeah, something that people would expect. So now it's being used like fully mm. ironically. Um, yes. but it in some circles it remains a very real thing. And for me, for example, I stayed off of, as I mentioned last episode, I stayed off of Twitter for almost two weeks, which is weird for me. I just really didn't go on it because I didn't want Star Wars The Force Awakens to be spoiled for me. Um, so I was treating the concept of a spoiler alert pretty seriously because I just wanted to watch mm-hmm. the movie. I didn't want to have a bunch of like plot points already in my head. I just wanted to let it be a movie and have a good time. And I saw it and really enjoyed it, and uh, I will not be spoiling Star Wars for anybody on this podcast, so never you worry. Uh, you have not yet seen this film, right? No. I'd recommend it. It was a good movie. Nice yeah. nice movie theater, popcorn experience, and they didn't mess it up as much as anybody probably expected them to. So Good. I mean, that's great. I, my plan is to see it when everyone else is done seeing it yeah. for the eighth time. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. Which I know is, like, crazy. I respect that. Yeah, I saw it on the Monday after it came out, so I I wasn't going to do the first weekend thing. Well, it's funny that you mentioned staying off of Twitter, because I think the impetus for spoiler sensitivity really arose when everyone suddenly had a platform to say things to everyone else at all times. the internet. Yeah. So, like, if you have, you know, Facebook where... On your feed, someone can just be like, 
Dumbledore dies <laughs> just 800 times. Darth Vader like, is obvious. Luke's father. Everyone knows. It's like, it obviously, it can get a little intense. And so, I think that's, um, been, that's been magnified, this, this ability for people to tell you things you don't want to know. It's been magnified, mm-hmm. at least for me and a lot of people that I interact with, by binge culture. So when Orange is the New Black comes out or whatever, a Netflix or Hulu or Amazon show comes out and they release all the episodes at once. Like, mm-hmm. I might not have the time to watch the entire season of Daredevil in a weekend. But somebody does. Yeah. There is somebody out there that does. And so now it's not just industry insiders that can spoil something for you. It's just someone who had more free time when something was released. Exactly. In the age of Netflix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the age of, like, any type of internet service that provides movies and TV shows. Yeah, we're going to, you know, we'll talk about this on a deeper level, but just on a shallow level, what do you think is a fair measure or rule or way of approaching spoilers for film or television or binge watching or like, should there be like a, a time limit? Like, Hey, like, or should it be, should it be corresponding with how big the thing is? Is it like, Hey, by the end of the first weekend of Star Wars being released, you should know that people are going to spoil it for you. Or should there be like a more standardized, like, hey, it should be a month for movies or what? You know, do you have any opinions mm-hmm. on that? Well, I think that goes into what kind of spoiler it is. Okay. Um, I think if it's, I'll label them a turn of events spoiler, yep. um, then it should be hush-hush for as long as possible. And by turn of events, I mean, like, okay, so... Let's take, like, Darth Vader being Luke Skywalker's father. Is that a a turn of events spoiler? No, it's not. That is an an informational spoiler. So, like, Darth Vader being Luke's father always was Mm -hmm. from the beginning of Episode Mm 4 until the end of time, because he was Luke's father. Uh, Bruce Willis being dead at the end of Sixth Sense... Mm -hmm. Um, and we're not spoiler the, alerting any movie that's 10 years old. Sorry, guys. No, no, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Like, if you don't know that, then, like, you probably shouldn't even watch movies. I will spoiler alert this, even though I probably shouldn't have to. So are you all caught up on Breaking Bad? Mm-hmm. When, uh, spoiler alert, <gasps> when Walter kills Mike Ehrmantraut, mm-hmm. is that, is, that's, a, that's a turn of events. Spoiler, yes. Right? Like, because that didn't it's not like you can watch the show and you and that's being like withheld from you. Yeah. You know? Like that's not like it'd be different if at the end of Breaking Bad he was like, What? I was mm-hmm. dreaming the whole time? Like that yeah. which would I be think, awful. I think but an like, interesting yeah. question that reveals most of the difference between the two. Not always, but most of the time is. Does anybody know this? Like, mm-hmm. does anybody in the thing know this? Like, does the Count of Monte Cristo know who the Count of Monte Cristo is? Does yeah. Darth Vader know that he's Luke Skywalker's father? Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's like a reveal spoiler rather than a turn of events spoiler. And you can discern that by asking the question, does anybody know this? Nobody knew that Walter was going to kill Mike until Walter killed Mike. Exactly. And that type of spoiler in which you're basically like telling someone what happens 
in the natural order of events, I think can be more um, devastating. Yeah. Because then the whole plot, you know, like then you start looking for like what's going to lead up to that. And Mm -hmm. like, it almost takes you out Mm -hmm. of the viewing experience Mm -hmm. because you're constantly waiting for this event to happen. Like if you knew Dumbledore was going to die, then at every point in that movie, when Dumbledore's alone with someone, you, you have reason to believe, is this it? Which is obviously an an awful way to watch a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I was thinking about, like, what if someone told you falsely that halfway through True Detective Season 1, Woody Harrelson's character kills Matthew McConaughey's character? Mm-hmm. Like, that that would be awful. That would really affect the way that you watch it. Oh, absolutely. Because you would always, you'd read into everything, too. Yeah. Like, you'd read into, like, oh, like, they're fighting, like, this is it, which, like, would be awful because they fight all the time every episode so yeah. it's like um but yeah that's kind of like the most dickish way to spoil something for somebody yeah. whereas telling someone who doesn't know this already that Darth Vader is Luke's father is also kind of a dick move but because some of the characters already know that yeah. it shouldn't Actually, that doesn't tell you. It doesn't change you know, the story. Yeah, it doesn't. Actually, yeah, it changes the significance of the story, but it doesn't mm-hmm. change the story. Yeah, it doesn't tell you about metal bikinis or Boba Fett yeah. or anything things that happen in the future. Yeah. You know, like it just lets you know information that maybe would have been better not known so you can experience it, yeah. but at the same time probably won't destroy Star Wars for you. And um, I think that's kind of my biggest complaint about being spoiler sensitive, I guess, um, is that if the only reason you go to movies or watch TV shows or read books, any type of narrative, um, is to figure out what's going to happen or experience what's happening and that's it then you're probably not doing those things right i would say we have a designated genre for this which is mystery Mm -hmm. so like when you read a sherlock holmes novel like that's fine it's fine for the Mm -hmm. because you're going to that primarily for that thing you're like oh i wonder what will happen how it'll shake out and yeah it's well written and i enjoy it but it's a mystery i'm reading it to try to figure out who done it but when Mm -hmm. i guess i'm agreeing with you in the way that when you when you try to make everything a mystery genre it it kind of Mm -hmm. narrows everything well you want you want to by focusing on one element of a, of a narrative, so like surprise, mystery, whatever, um, it makes it easier to digest in a lot of ways. Yeah. So by turning everything into a mystery, like what's going to happen at the end, mm-hmm. um, well, certain things don't fit into that period. So like, um, I would say any type of like thematic piece. So I can't believe... I'm forgetting Woody Allen movies probably don't really work with Mm -hmm. what's going to happen because nothing 
does, mm-hmm. kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, or if it does, it's very subtle. Um, well, and one of the... This is slightly related, but it's in my brain, so I'll say it. Um, one of the things that I think makes Harry Potter very close to real art is that mystery is only one of the elements. It's mystery, it's fantasy, it's buildings, Roman, you know, the coming of age. Um, mm-hmm. And there's some world building there and everything. So, I mean, the core of each of the first six Harry Potter books is this, is a, there's a mystery. They have to figure out what's going on with some thing. Um, but that's not all that it is, and I think that elevates it. Mm-hmm. Well, because there's nothing in Harry Potter, and this might be over-reading it a little bit, but there's nothing in Harry Potter that... I guess I can't really talk about it until I go into like what I consider a cheap plot. Okay. Oh, yeah. We can do, we can do some ground rules now. Let's... um. Yeah. Kind of take a step back and have you, because you're you're our literature expert. Have you kind of lay out some things about plot devices and plot in general, cheap plot, and um, mm-hmm. some of the things, some of the rules that you and I kind of probably and that a lot of people apply to movies, television, but especially mm-hmm. literature. I would consider something to have a cheap plot if the only thing that drives a narrative is information that is withheld from the viewer or reader. So if the only thing that drove Harry Potter was that we don't know that the bond between Voldemort and Harry is a little bit more significant than we thought it was. Um, Or Mad Men, for example. If the only thing that drove the drama of the first season of Mad Men was that Don Draper isn't actually Don Draper's name. I would consider that very cheap. So I think a lot of later M. Night Shyamalan movies fall into this category where The Village, for example, even though aesthetically I think it's still an interesting movie. Yeah, I actually enjoyed it when I saw it, but I was probably 15 years younger than I am now. Yeah, well, I just remember it looking really cool. It is. It's a cool Um, aesthetic, yeah. In the colors and stuff. The fact that information is purposefully withheld from you, um, yeah. and that is the only like aha moment you get the entire movie, that is what makes it yeah. cheap for me. So I think a really good example mm-hmm. would be if there's a story about a young 20 age woman falling in love with like a 48 year old man. And the whole story progresses and blah, 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 blah. And then at the last chapter, they go and they get a marriage license or whatever. And you find out that he's really her father. And then it's like, got ya. I think it's the got ya. Like any any narrative that has like a got ya element Mm -hmm. where it almost like, throws away everything it's done. I think the most classic one was like, it's all a dream. Like at the end of a, like five season long show being like, and then you figure out they were just dreaming the whole time. Like like it basically, not St. Elmo's fire, but it was the St. St. Elsewhere or St. Something. Mm -hmm. It was a hospital show. And at the end you discover that it's all in the imagination of some like, disabled kid or something like it's yeah it's like the entire show is taking place in the mind of it's just it's like 
Do you think that makes it more significant, <laughs> creators of this show? Like, so what was I supposed to do with all this narrative before him? Because he deepens it, you know? So, like, any type of shit that that father and daughter had, uh, especially if people don't know, and you don't know, and there's no re- reason for you to think it or for them to think it, yeah. and then it just hits you in, it's very, it makes all of that stuff... Um, very, it, it's right. Where a much more interesting novel would be for the father to know that from the beginning, or even more interesting, yeah. the daughter to know that from the beginning, or even more and more interesting for them both to know that and still pursue this. Yeah. Like, yeah. that would be, in terms of like interesting narrative and plot development, that would be infinitely more desirable for me than. Gaia, because the Gaia thing, as soon as it's given, as soon as they get you, it's over. And you can never do it again. Yeah, so, I think it's a difference. Um, this is making it a little bit more dramatic than maybe some people would think it is. But I think mm-hmm. it's a difference between acting in good faith as a storyteller and kind mm-hmm. of acting in bad faith. Like, are you trustworthy? As, as a storyteller because if you're mm-hmm. if you're not if you're not trustworthy as a storyteller and you take these people on a journey and then at the end you're like ha um it's, it cheapens the rest of it it doesn't actually make it more significant and it pretty much makes for a very boring narrative because all the stuff before the haha moment is normally just build up so it's really boring because the writer or author or filmmaker doesn't want to make that stuff interesting. Yeah. You know, they want to make the the moment interesting. And I think that kind of falls to the wayside. And if you look at classic literature, it's very hard to even find the whole, like, did you know? And then like something crazy is revealed mm-hmm. to you. Yeah. I think, so Count of Monte Cristo is a great example. Like we know as the reader from the beginning who he is, mm-hmm. you know, and the big reveals in that novel are two other characters. It's not to us. Like we aren't like, yeah. who could the Count of Monte Cristo be? We don't know. <clears throat> like we know from the beginning. And yet that book remains interesting to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that only when serialization became super important Mm -hmm. so when you get to like dickens where you have great expectations where it's like this crazy homeless man in a graveyard is actually your dad (laughs) like and everyone's like whoa like that is but you have to realize like at that point this is someone who's like writing cliffhangers like this is the first sitcom serialized type of thing yes interesting Mm -hmm. so when you think about Shakespeare or when you think about maybe pre-Dickens Dickensian you think about <clears throat> great writing why why doesn't it need this kind of driving mysterious or plot twist type of a thing that we see in so much of our art um, these days yeah I would say that 
I mean, that's, it's a really broad question. I'm trying not to be too vague, but I would say that plot was one part of a host of other things mm-hmm. that were going on in literature. So you weren't reading, you weren't blazing through the Hunger Games to try to figure out what happens to Katniss mm-hmm. or immersing yourself in some fantasy novel to figure out why the secret history of dragons equals blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It was more along the lines of developing character, um, the use of language in the first place, and novels, for better or worse, have a very strong tradition of commentary. Yeah. So I think that people expected novels to say something to them, and they weren't just reading them for, like, I can't wait to escape into Jane Austen's drawing room Mm -hmm. or whatever. I think it was a lot more... And I think they were all held in common. I think the most healthy type of reading still does that where you, because I mean, as someone who has a literature degree, when you're reading Moby Dick and Romeo and Juliet and crime and punishment, everyone knows yeah, what those yeah, stories are yeah, about. Like there's a whale. <laughs> yeah. Like, Oh my God, he's the only one that survives. <laughs> like Ishmael's the only one who makes it. When in reality, you kind of already know that mm-hmm. from the beginning. So it's like, and it's, well, can, it's I, not, can I yeah. ask you, if, uh, t- mm-hmm. tell me, tell me if this is a good analogy. Uh, the quality of the writing of the language of the prose in classic novels is somewhat analogous to the quality of the cinematography and the music and the acting of a movie like a like a contemporary film mm-hmm. does that is does that make sense or does that invalid i think i think that's a good i think it's a good um, because i can watch like a movie that i already know everything that's going to happen but if it's well acted and the music and the cinematography is good like i can enjoy it just as much as something that keeps me you know like wondering what's going to come next yeah and I, I think it's like music, too, you know? Like, I think some music you listen to because you want to get, like, pumped up. Mm-hmm. And, like, you're ready to go to the workout club or a gym, I guess is what I it's like called. I like how you um, talk about it like you've never been to a gym. It's like I've never been to a gym in my life. Are you guys going to the, the weight store? Weight? store that is members only um are you guys going to the to the fitness park let me know see you there um but it's it's some of that music is for that reason and i think that some people listen to music i've known people where any music that doesn't have like four four right bpm type of structure is depressing yeah you know, they'll say, like, this is really depressing. Even if it's a really, like, jovial song, it's like, this is depressing because it doesn't access that side of music for me. Yeah. And I think with movies and narrative, that cheapness, that experience-only aspect of it is the, oh, my gosh, that happened yeah. element so that, of it. That's, like, that's, quote, thrill... that's, quote, the beat. 
Mm-hmm. I just listened to this that... for the beat. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So when someone says that, they, I mean, that's... Like, honestly, that's basically... like, I, yeah. I had some time to kill a few weeks ago, and I watched the first two Divergent movies. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I'm watching them is to see what happens. Like, I that, like that's, mm-hmm. that's like me listening to Britney Spears. It's like, I... I'm not here for the performances. I'm not here for like the breathtaking, like just amazingly written dialogue. I'm here to just to just this is candy. This is this is this is soda. This is this is not good for me. I'm not gonna really get anything out of this. But you know, Shailene Woodley seems to be doing some things, so I'm gonna watch her do some <laughs> things for two hours. Yeah. Well, see that that is. A desire I really have too, you know. Like I'll see a trailer for even like a video game or some like god awful sci fi miniseries or something. And but now that the internet exists, I can just like go online and just read the plot yeah, and you go, can just "Oh, Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah." I'm like, "Oh, that's what happens. That's so crazy." Like the the least yeah. the last season of American Horror Story, the like hotel yeah. sex god, dungeon god. one. Yeah, um, I just like read like what happens to each of them, yeah. and that was enough. Because like I don't even because I realize like I don't care about any part of the show except like oh that's an interesting idea. Even if I what went happens. online tonight and I read everything about the first two seasons of Fargo, I'm still gonna watch every single one of those episodes when I get the chance because I'm excited about watching Fargo, like about actually watching it. Exactly, and like if you're being really pessimistic. Um, Narratives are kind of not that crazy different if you reduce them enough. Like, we know going into Star Wars that the good guys will win or at least have a glimmer of hope for winning in the future. And with trilogies, it's a little bit harder because they normally follow the, like, we're actually doing it. And then the next one's like, uh-oh, this is harder than we thought it was. <laughs> and then the third one's like, no, it wasn't. Yeah. Like, so, like, so it's actually not harder. Um, yeah. Trilogies <laughs> actually tell you exactly what's going to happen. Like in the first, mm-hmm. the first installment, it's like, you're going to meet some people. And then the, and the next one is, uh-oh, this doesn't look uh-oh. good. Uh-oh. And, Things were different than we thought yeah, they were. And then the third one is like, never mind. Mm-hmm. And even trilogies I love are like that, yeah. where it's like Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It's like the first one's like adventure and dwarfs and My axe. God knows what's happening. And then the second one's like hellish medieval existences in a warrior culture in a field Just and like gross. children suffocating in caves yeah, underneath a battlefield. And like it's never going to get better. Mm-hmm. And then it does. And then the third one's like, oh, eagles, so, like, whatever you guys want, like, just do it. Um, it would have been great if that last scene where they, the eagles come and rescue all of them, that, mm-hmm. that it was the band, the eagles, that it was... On, like, as the eagles or on top of the eagles? I'm not sure, but the, the song Take It to the Limit probably should have been okay. playing, at least in the background. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, like, Don Henley... And um, Joe Walsh and, okay. you know, all the guys coming together. Just all the guys. Yeah, just coming. And they're either anthropomorphic eagles or they're eagle riders or something. I mm-hmm. just felt like that. And, like, 
Liv Tyler does like a really sexy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like elvish mating dance yeah. to Witchy Woman yeah. or, or something. Line, line yeah. Eyes. yeah, I mean they got a few. Yeah, I would I would have enjoyed that more too. I think that's something The Hobbit should have focused on yeah. more closely, more like a crossover kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Instead the licensing of licensing deals, yeah. But it, I mean, I would have enjoyed that more than dwarfs in barrels for <laughs> fifty minutes. Hey, we're gonna put these dwarfs in these barrels. One's fat. Just like I love how that's still a joke. Like I'm not like one of those like fat positive people, but like the fact that like an entire character yeah. for someone in a major movie is that yeah. they're fat yeah. is really funny to me. Yeah. Anyways, um, that's it a was tangent. a children's book written in the forties. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's true. But, I mean, it goes to show you, like, we know the good guys will win. I've yeah. never seen a story ever where the good guys don't win unless it's a tragedy and then it's marketed as such. Yeah. And then so you know that's not going to happen. Yeah. And in Hollywood, tragedies tend to have this, like, sober acceptance element, at least, at the end. Where it's not just like everything's terrible. Bye. Yeah. It's more Except like, for Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> y- yeah, yeah. That's like good luck. Like, yeah. enjoy your ride home from the movie theater. Did you ever see The Virgin Suicides? Yeah, yeah. That was a that was an experience. That was that was a hoot. Yeah, I, I was a teenager, and I, I also saw a movie called The House of Sand and Fog. It's just, it was just because um. Cause, um who played Gandhi? Okay. Oh God! The guy who played in, ben, ben, in that ben, movie? No, Ben Kin- Kings Kingsley. In the Gandhi movie? Yeah. yeah. So he was mm-hmm. in the House of Sand and Fog, and I'm just like thinking the whole time as the movie gets darker and darker that just like I was like, this isn't this isn't much more fun than Gandhi's actual life. <laughs> like this yeah. is this is this is not great. Wait. This is not a this is not a fun thing to do. Yeah, this isn't like a. I probably shouldn't be drinking or eating anything while I watch this. <laughs> that was just my thought about tragedies. Oh no, it's true. But I I I mean, it's just, and I know it's reductionist. But I remember my mom, who has this like, paranatural ability to like sit in the first six minutes of a movie and be like, this is what's going to happen. And 98% of the times is correct. Nice. Um, so there's that. Uh, they, I think growing up with her, a lot of times she wouldn't take me to see like dumb kid movies and like, God bless her soul. But like power Rangers are like Pokemon seven or whatever. <laughs> and She'd be like, well, you know, they're going to win. So, like, there you go. There's the movie for you. <laughs> and I remember telling her, like, I know, but I want to know how. Yeah. And I and I think that is what you should look at in those things. And, yes, spoilers do suck. But at the same time, it doesn't really t- – like, knowing that Dumbledore dies could mean anything. I mean, first of all, he's, like, 200 years old. Yeah, super so he- old. He could just die yeah. like all of his real actors yeah. did. Um, or, he, like, you know, maybe he chokes on something. Maybe, you know, whatever. Maybe he dies in a duel with Voldemort. Maybe it's the most epic thing ever. Maybe it's sabotage. Yeah. Maybe, maybe Harry know, has to kill him to do something. Yeah. 
maybe he has to give up his life to save Hermione's timekeeper school schedule mm-hmm. um, or something. I don't know. But it doesn't really tell you anything else besides that. And if you look at, like, narrative structures, anything that Young did, or uh, who's the guy who wrote A Hero with a Thousand Faces? I always forget his name. Campbell? Yeah. He's kind of right about a lot of things, especially about epics. So Star Wars. He's the one that wrote the the Power of Myth. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Harry Potter and things where it's like a young man who's coming from, like, not-so-great circumstances is motivated by this call of either future or past family. So either the promise of a wife or a family member you know, reaching out from the past or something. Mm-hmm. And then he meets like a wise old man mm-hmm. and then he gets his lovable sidekicks. And then there's like an evil guy mm-hmm. that's closer to him than you think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, he beats him and then the movie or story's over. So if you look at everything like that, then, I mean, I can spoil every big budget Hollywood movie that will ever be made until the end of time, you know? But I think what I'm trying to say is like, so it's Beowulf. Yeah, it's Homer. Yeah. It's it's nothing and that shouldn't be like sad. Mm-hmm. You know, it shouldn't be like, "Oh my god, like what's left to do?" Yeah. You know, nothing else has been there's no need to write anything else. It's like, no, what makes it interesting is that in Harry Potter, the dynamic between Hermione and Ron and Harry, especially in the last novels besides the weird like high school sex drama yeah. or whatever the hell was happening, was actually super interesting. Yeah. Like, very mm-hmm. realistic and very, like, as a high schooler reading it, being like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, having that moment also, of, like... like, like she yeah. she purposefully makes Harry less heroic. Mm-hmm. Like, Harry, like, there's a lot of times where Hermione or Ron are actually more courageous or more sacrificial or more good than Harry. And, like, a lot of time you're kind of wondering, and this she's actually been criticized for this. You're like, why is this guy special? Like, mm-hmm. why does he deserve like to be the central figure? And I think for her, she doesn't want him to always deserve to be the central figure. Yeah, and the whole the the fact that he doesn't end up with Hermione was is just a huge upset to how you think things are progressing. Yeah, you know. Um. I mean, not to get on a Harry Potter, like, whatever. I just think it serves as an example that you can mix up the formula slightly and you can get some really good results if you do it artfully. Yeah, well, that's what creativity is. I mean, if that was the case, then, like, there would never be an original sonnet. Yeah. You know? And there are. So, even though it's a highly formed thing, it's still... I mean, it's Tarantino movies. Like, I know when I go to a Tarantino movie kind of what's going to happen mm-hmm. you know and but i always and that's why i can watch kill bill or even more so pulp fiction thousands of times yeah. because it's so interesting how it's happening yeah. like the it's almost like it's just so mm-hmm. so stunning it's fascinating in the and it's a combination of a hundred elements of the way it's shot the way it's paced the acting just everything kind of lines up to make it a really complete movie. Um, and I think there are examples of that where you don't need to know that 
at or if you know that at the end of Shawshank Redemption, someone's going to find a box near a fence somewhere, yeah. like, isn't going to ruin the movie for you. Yeah, Shawshank Redemption is, like, my most rewatchable movie of all time, and I really do not care that I know exactly what's going to happen. I just love watching it happen. Mm-hmm. Also because your memory is deceiving, you know? So even if you know, every time I've rewatched, like, Silence of the Lambs or something... Mm-hmm. Something always new, depending on where I'm at in my life, or even my state of, like, am I really awake? Mm -hmm. Am I kind of drunk? Blah, 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 blah. I always find myself being like, was that in that movie? Like, oh my gosh, you know? Yeah. Jessica was watching something. She was watching a movie a few months ago, and I got home, and and she had watched it, and she said it, it was a completely different movie. Then, because she had changed, mm-hmm. and it's kind of funny how that can happen. Like you can, you can rewatch a movie and be like, "Oh, okay, well, oh, it it, it was the Devil Wears Prada." Yeah, it was Devil Wears Prada. When Jessica first saw the Devil Wears Prada, she was a young woman who was probably watching like this is a coming of age story and this is about fashion and not being a, not being a cute girl and becoming a cute girl and there's two guys you're interested in mm-hmm. but like when she watched it this year you know just is a very accomplished career woman the major themes that stuck out to her were like the tension between trying to have a life and be really good at your job and being a woman in a high-powered industry that you know is cutthroat and mm-hmm. it was really interesting to me how differently she watched the movie you know, 10 years later. And I think that happens to all of us to a certain extent when we have changed and we go back and we we consume the same piece of art again. That's why I think great art is transcendent and classic and all those words we use for it. Exactly. And I, I think it feeds into something I brought up, I think, in the fandom episode, but a new kind of... Not kind of. A new trend I see in art of, or at least uh, audience participation art in which there's this extreme focus on information yeah. only, yeah. you know, and I, I talked about that in the whole, like the 9 million pages of the Star Trek wiki yeah. or, you know, things like that. But even in like our, um, in our culture, not just like nerdy people, but not that they're like a distinct group of people, but not just fanboys, but normal people, I think are starting to view it as I want something that's easy to digest. And I think information is actually the easiest part of a novel to digest. Yeah. It's in this novel, she does this. And in this thing she does that she really loves mr darcy yeah and that's it like that's it's a much much easier to read right in front of prejudice and figure out that she loves mr darcy than i think it is to figure out what is this saying about the interactions between men and women and i think people start watching more and more film just to figure it out, quote unquote. Yeah. 
And I think the art forms that really resist that, so dance, um, classical music, Terrence Malick, po- Terrence Malick films, poetry, things that are more expression, um, kind of ad- like abstract by nature, um, that don't have narrative and therefore don't have information that's readily available mm-hmm. for you. Things that are impressionistic. Mm-hmm. They they suffer because there are no spoiler alerts in poetry. Yeah. You know, I mean, in not I mean in narrative poetry, I guess there could be, but there are no spoiler alerts in Beethoven symphonies or the sower. <laughs> yeah, or Swan Lake. Hey, there's a you guy know, like throwing seed. Get like in this poem, Walt Whitman is actually everyone. So spoiled it for you, like, you know, because you don't. You never do, you're not there for that in the first place. Yeah. And I think that's why some of those art forms are very, very hard to even get people to. Were you talking about Oh Captain, My Captain? I was talking about Song of Myself. Okay. Where he's like, I'm everyone and I'm no one. Ha ha. And everyone's like, okay, calm down. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, when I. By the way, did was, Walt Whitman. Did Walt. Am I wrong to think that oftentimes Walt Whitman was writing as if he was America? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you're not wrong. Because okay. yeah. he, he deeply identified, like, his body with the continent, the continent right? Like, like, yeah. Yeah. Walt Whitman, like, is a ghost. Like, he, like, possesses things poetically. Sorry for those of you who don't like poetry. Yeah, like, get out. Grow up. But stop listening to our podcast. <laughs> our goals have one listener by the end of this. Thank you. The, the one diehard Walt Whitman fan <laughs> just sitting in a room somewhere like, yeah. Yeah, but also like upset because we're not doing him enough justice. Exactly. So they stop listening too. Um, but yeah, he like tries to, and I think Song of Myself is a great example of just like trying to almost be like every person who's ever existed and like being some co-worker and also some middle-aged woman and also some soldier and Mm -hmm. very like expansive and in that obviously there isn't really a narrative like nothing happens in song of myself so to speak but it's an expression of a feeling of like unification but also individuality and things like that so a lot of times when i would try to help people start reading poetry a big hurdle that I'd have to get over is a lot of people think that they're like puzzles, like word puzzles. Yeah, they're all just like, clever tricks. Yeah. That like Hart Crane, like put himself in an attic and was like trying to like tr- see who the smartest people in the world were who could read his poems, you know, like, or that Beethoven wrote, you know, 40 minute symphonies just to see how long you could last mm-hmm. or something like, and you have to kind of like, figure it out and memorize all this biographical information and learn all these technical terms and the history and all this more and more and more information. And then once you have all that, then you're ready to read the poem, uh, which I think is why people are like, I'm not interested because that's stupid. Um, and also because there's no payoff yeah, really at work. the end. Yeah. It's, I think that whole thing is the reason why I mean, I know I've said this like a hundred times, but 
that's the reason why these, in my theory, the reason why these things are dying. Are not dying, but are just very difficult to get people interested in. Yeah. Because film and young adult novels in particular, young adult novels in particular are almost 100% world building and exposition. Yeah. So they become like, isn't it interesting that in this world, teenagers are put in a giant maze and they have to figure out how to get out. And that's, and that's literally it. There's, and once you live in that world and know all the facts and find your character to buy a shirt about, then you're set. And I think it's much more difficult to get someone interested in like a waiting for Godot type narrative where does anything happen? You know, I'm sure Tim will have a lot to say about that site. Mm. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. Um, okay, so we've dissected this a little bit. Talked a little bit about spoiler alerts and the undergirding issues of plot and form. Um, so if we were to counsel our listeners on how to approach spoiler alerts or maybe some some things maybe some resources that like spoiler alerts don't matter you know spoiler alerts Mm -hmm. maybe maybe some nice pieces of literature or something where it's like it doesn't matter if you know what happens like just enjoy this and maybe that will allow you to escape the trap of spoiler alerts in other areas of your life what would you what would you say Hmm. i would reread things that you think you know what are about mm-hmm. what they're about so i would spend some time with romeo and juliet maybe okay. like that's a classic one because every everyone knows what happens in that quote unquote yeah. you know everyone knows the story or i guess I guess this is a little bit different, but like things you were forced to read in high school, even. So like the Scarlet Letter or um, what's what's something that everyone reads? Well, I was just telling uh, two people yesterday about a a novel that I had to read in school that actually I think this applies pretty well. Maybe you can tell me what you think about it. Mm -hmm. I was trying to tell them about this novel without spoiling it for them. So this is apropos. Because some big, uh, you know, there's kind of a big thing that happens that I didn't want. But the novel, I think, is beyond, even had I spoiled it for them, I would still hope that they ha- would take my suggestion and read it. And that's the, the novel A Separate Piece mm-hmm. um, by Knowles, is it John Knowles. Um, did you ever read that book? I did. I just really enjoyed that when I read it. And I read it pretty at a pretty young age. Do you remember the basics about A Separate Piece? I do. Yeah, and I just I think it's a a wonderful novel, and it's sad, and it's really interesting, and it gets to some really deep human questions, and you can. I read it, and I didn't I didn't have any idea what happened, but I think you could probably still read that novel and know the main thing that happens, right? Totally. I mean, I think. Sometimes knowing the plot, I mean, I can give you a a narrative about this. So I was in a Victorian literature class and we were all sitting down and the professor was like, okay, guys, take out your reading schedules. Everyone, 
And he's like, okay, we're reading The Goblin Market this week. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about these two girls who eat fruit from these goblins. And, like, one of them goes to sleep. And the other one tries to get her back. And, like, she doesn't. She has to live with that. And, like, one of the girls was like, wow, spoil the whole thing for us. And he just, like, looked at her and was like, what? She was like, you don't, like, you don't tell people what happens in it. And he was just like, like, really confused that she would even, like, have an issue with that. And he was like, if you're reading these things to figure out what happens at the end, how are you paying attention to anything else? Mm. And I think that's a little extreme. Um, I think if you're a literature professor, maybe you're, you're fine with that lifestyle. But for the rest of us, I definitely enjoy reading things to figure out what happens. Um, Often not. But when I already know what's going to happen, um, whether it be just because the thing has been completely absorbed by popular culture Mm -hmm. or because I've read it before, it almost is this liberating um, freedom to really explore other elements of the work. Yeah, I think to notice details is one of the things that I have to do when I know what's going to happen. Because you're trying not to get lost, Mm -hmm. you know? So, like, sometimes when you read like a Thomas Pynchon or a Dostoevsky or something huge like East of Eden or War of Peace, War and Peace or Middlemarch or something that's just these giant sprawling You're going to forget most of the details. Yeah, and so you, like, the first time you read it, you're like, oh my god, which Ivanikov is this that I'm talking to at the moment? And it's like, it absorbs a lot of your attention, but I think almost letting go of plot can really open up other areas for you yeah. as, as an audience member. I would use an analogy. Um, so my wife and I have almost been married for 10 years, and mm-hmm. there's not a lot of surprises. Like, you know each other. Like, I've known her for half my life. And, mm-hmm. um, so there's not a lot of, like, oh, shocking that she would say that or do that or think that or that, you know, we would like this or choose to go out and do that there's not a lot of surprises but it doesn't mean that it's not enjoyable i think the cheap i think the cheap way to do relationships is you're always looking for a new surprise or thrill or or something mm-hmm. that's going to just take you by storm or it's like a deeper way to enjoy a relationship with somebody is to try to pay attention to the less obvious things as you're watching the same movie that you watched together 10 years ago, or as you're going out to the same restaurant that you went to, or as you're taking a trip to Napa Valley for the third time, or whatever it is that, yeah, there are little differences, but the plot is basically the same. But if all you're, if all you're reading for in that relationship is plot, then you're actually not enjoying the moments. You're just waiting for for it to be over. Yeah. You're waiting for the next thing. You are not being present. So I, I guess, the dual fascination with not living in the present and be reducing everything to information. Yeah. I think both of those things add into a really unhealthy fascination with spoiler alerts. Mm-hmm. And more importantly, when you, through your analogy in relationships, in your career, in your personal life, I mean, I know people where they have to constantly be moving you know? Yeah. Like they have to travel and they have to go see things because like they yeah. would just 
go crazy if they stayed at home all the time. Let me and guess, these me, people probably aren't great at long-term relationships. <laughs> I would say not. <laughs> um, but it's just, it's like this, if you can't see the differences, you know, yeah. the small ones, then I don't think you'll ever be happy, really. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Man, that got deep. Yeah, I know that was kind of like a fortune cookie. Yeah. If you can't see the small differences, you'll never be happy, really. Fortune cookie. So if someone decided to change their lives as a result of this of this podcast. As many have yeah. before. What would be the first thing you'd say? You have got to read this or watch this and just don't just don't care what happens because it's obviously it's obvious what's going to like the opposite of something that needs to not be spoiled. Basically, what would you, you you said Romeo and Juliet before any other any other things that you just really enjoy, even though you like it, it's so obvious what's going to happen. There's no mystery at all, but it's just so enjoyable for you. Mm-hmm. Find things that overuse has demolished. Um, so Ride of the Valkyries okay. by Wagner, yeah. for example. So this thing, this piece of music has been used in cartoons yep. and war movies and commercials yep. and Super Bowl halftime shows, I'm sure, and blah, blah, blah. And it's literally almost impossible to actually listen to it and try to experience it. Unless you're able to really, really sit down and listen to it. And then you realize why it is so prevalent. You know, like you finally get to it. But I think something like that, something like, once again, Romeo and Juliet, something that's been parodied and remade. And, you know, we call people Romeos when they do certain things and like whatever. If you can clear all of that away and actually experience the play again, I think that would be step one. You know, and that's that's like a very heavy step one, yeah. but it's a process. And I'm I'm still really bad. I mean, there's certain things I can't even like, for example, Led Zeppelin and the Beatles. Yeah. These are things that are like on college dorm rooms, yeah. doors, and Everyone knows it, mm-hmm. and everyone talks about it, and everyone blah, 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 blah. It has been a process in my life to actually try to listen to the Beatles. Yeah. Because it's so, you already know. You know all of the songs. You know mm-hmm. what happened. You know what, they're so good. They're the mm-hmm. best. It's really hard to actually try to listen to it. <clears throat> I would add to that, this, one of the things I enjoy doing because I think it isolates and neutralizes plot or Mm -hmm. figuring out what's going on or the information. I like to consume different versions of the same thing Mm because it really, it takes out the whole, Ooh, this is what's happening. And you, you can only focus on how it's being done, how it's like, so watch the BBC miniseries pride and prejudice, and then watch the more recent film, uh, Pride and Prejudice with um, what's her face? Kira, Kira yeah, Kira? yeah, Kira Knightley, and you know, see how how they did it differently, or you know, 
read a Shakespeare play and then go see a Shakespeare play and then watch a Kenneth Branagh edition of that Shakespeare play and then watch a Baz Luhrmann or a Mel Gibson, you know, version of that Shakespeare mm-hmm. play or a, or a, a Joss Whedon version of that Shakespeare play. Like there's, for me, it's, it's like a labor of love to go back over something that I already know, but that I, I actually really enjoy covers Mm-hmm. of songs yes. that I like for that reason. Like I like Ingrid Michaelson's cover of I can't help falling in love with you. Um, mm-hmm. the Elvis song. Um, yeah. I just really like it, but it makes me appreciate the Elvis version as well. Um, mm-hmm. and I like, you know, I like seeing what people do with different things. Um, and because it, it allows you to pre- appreciate the angles of the thing. Um, but it minimizes the importance of figuring out the thing itself and it really brings you into the realm of interpretation and of uh, contemplation and of sort of what humans can do with things. So I just, I remember when we read Romeo and Juliet in high school, we saw like portions of like three different versions of Romeo and Juliet films. Um, Mm -hmm. Or yeah, we did that. And then I think we did the same thing with Hamlet and it was just, it allows you to appreciate the process and it allows you to appreciate the artistry of what's going on. So that's, that's what I like to do. I would definitely recommend that too. Um, just because like you said, it, it highlights that the execution because that's what, that's what makes those different covers in different versions different. Isn't it? It isn't the plot. It isn't the melody. It's the execution of those things. And I think that combined with what I was saying, where just everyone knows Vivaldi, you know, but actually trying, you know, like, and I think that's the big thing for me is really trying to look at the art for what it is instead of trying to get something out of it is the big goal. Whether that's information or a feeling of nostalgia or to complete your understanding of elvish war formations, mm-hmm. it's, it's really experiencing it for what it is. Yeah. And I think to bring it all the way back around to the beginning with Star Wars, I think one of the things I enjoyed about uh, The Force Awakens is that there was fan service, but it wasn't dominated by fan service. And there were little echoes and little Easter eggs and little things that happened in this movie. And it really was a kind of a mirror image of A New Hope. Um, mm-hmm. But it was almost, it was, and I, I saw someone writing a, a, a critical article saying, this isn't a new installment, this is a reboot. Basically, mm-hmm. this is A New Hope rebooted. But there was something really interesting in the way that J.J. Abrams and company reinterpreted a very similar kind of story for a new generation using the same universe. Um, So I didn't mind the rebooty aspects because for me it felt more like reinterpretation. Um, You know, and, and it didn't go so far as to kind of ignore the past. So it's not a reboot. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and there's nothing wrong with reinterpretations. In fact, I think like covers, they're almost really like 
interesting. Like one of the most interesting things for me as a audience member. I love, I love seeing different versions at different times, you know, mm-hmm. like especially the futures in movies. I know it's like, this is like a really weird tangent, but I was just thinking about it. But like the future in eighties movies is like this desolate, awful shit planet yeah. that everyone hates being on, whether it's like <laughs> Mad Max or Waterworld or Blade Runner. Runner. Like everything is just like smoggy and awful and everyone's like miserable and whatever. And then like late nineties, early two thousands, the future is an Apple store. Yeah. Like everything's yeah. like white and glass yeah. and matted and metal. iRobot and, and AI and yeah. minority report. Yeah, there's, like, this weird, everything's, like, glowing glass yeah. for some reason. And it's just, that is very interesting to me. Because it's the same thing. It's just through different lenses. And I I think focusing too much on being spoiled and trying to, like, you know, na 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 I'm not going to listen to anything, like, don't tell me. Almost, like, robs movies of those type of interesting interactions. Word. Well, I think we have done a decent job covering some of the angles of the the species of thing called the spoiler alert and um, mm-hmm. talking about some of the, the relevant pop culture angles and philosophical angles. And I want to take a couple minutes at the end of this podcast to kind of introduce our audience to what we'll be doing in the future, which is we're going to continue to do these sort of broad thematic podcasts that we've been doing, whether it's naysayers or whether it's podcasts or not podcasts, but spoiler alert or whatever um, these, mm-hmm. these broad thematic episodes that we've been doing, but we're also going to branch out and start to talk about certain kinds of culture, certain kinds of popular culture. And we really want to, like we did with Mike uh, a few episodes ago in fandom, which is a very particular kind of a pop cultural thing. It's not a, it's not really mm-hmm. a broad theme as much as it is a corner of the pop culture universe that we inhabit. Um, we want to start bringing you more of those things based upon uh, the expertise and the perspectives of people we really respect. And um, it won't be every episode, but it will, it will be more and more that we'll be bringing people in who are real uh, friends of ours, who are real experts in, in different kinds of culture and different kinds of cultural artifacts and, and expressions. And that's going to start up a little bit more um Next week in episode 12, where we'll be talking with our good friend Tim Davis, who is about as into theater as anyone that I've ever met, mm-hmm. um, both as an actor, someone who studied it at a, at a master's level, um, somebody who has been in won't shut up about <laughs> it, shut up about it, loves plays. Yeah. Just whenever you mention Phil- Philip Seymour Hoffman, just starts crying. Um, and, and I think like. Tim understands as about as well as anybody the, the cultural relevance and some of the philosophical underpinnings of the theater. And so that's uh, some, that's what we're going to be talking about in um, next week's episode theater. But this is not just a one-off. We're going to be starting to access some of the expertise of the people in our lives that are really, um, that are really in these worlds. So uh, look for, I hope you guys look forward to more of that and we will continue to do things about, identity politics or about cultural appropriation or about artistic credibility, but we're, we're going to be sprinkling in some more of these more specific or focused episodes. Absolutely. Cool. Well, that's uh, about all I have. Do you have anything else for this week, Nick? 
No, not really. All right. So this has been Ryan. And Nick. And you will hear from us very soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.